собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. A few things before we get started. In an effort to get some feedback and improve the show, I've created a survey about the show's content, quality, and to get listeners' general comments and suggestions. If you have a few minutes and want to tell me what you think, please go to seansrussiablog.org and fill out the survey. Many people have responded, and I thank all of you for your opinions. The survey will run until the middle of August. I will summarize the results in an upcoming podcast and blog post. Also, I'm always looking to hear listener comments and questions, so submit them at seansrussiablog.org, and I'll read some of them in the next podcast. I've been going back and forth over the last couple of days on whether to comment on the Trump-Putin nexus. On the one hand, the whole issue is something off the cutting room floor of a bad Cold War flick. On the other hand, I'm quite concerned what impact this will have on debates about U.S. policy towards Russia and the region at large, not just now, but after the American election as well. For this reason, I feel I should say something. The recent hyperventilation about Trump's admiration for Putin his and his associates' connections to business interests in Russia, and the Kremlin's preference for a Trump presidency is alarming. I have no problem with people debating the wisdom of Trump's views on NATO or his desire to cozy up to Russia, but the media's framing of these issues are a combination of clickbait and hysteria reminiscent of the worst fear-mongering during the Cold War. Several prominent pundits with influence in shaping political discourse and policy about Russia are advocating the idea Trump is a Manchurian candidate. Sure, they insert caveats to make themselves sound less unhinged, but I've found pundits and even some Russia experts' ability to slip into the same conspiratorial thinking that comes out of the Kremlin quite striking. In my view, these people discredit themselves. Frankly, I don't find Trump's admiration for Putin any more disturbing than 29 high-profile past and present U.S. politicians and officials, including Obama, dropping everything and running to kiss the dead hand of Saudi King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz. The relationship between U.S. politicians and dictators has a long history. So does American PR firms whitewashing human rights abusers and other members of the Global Rogues Gallery. This is not to say connections between authoritarian governments and U.S. politicians shouldn't be a political issue. They absolutely should. 
but the ferocity of the outcry when it comes to Russia busts the charts. What personally disturbs me is what this kind of conspiracy mongering will do to conversations about U.S. policy toward Russia. We've already had a wave of critics of NATO and U.S. policy being labeled as useful idiots and paid Kremlin agents. The low point in all of this was the embarrassing scandal involving a grant Stephen Cohen and Katrina Vanden Heuvel wanted to give the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies to support graduate student research. Now those critical of U.S. policy run the risk of also being equated with Manchurian candidate Trump. This is already happening. Jonathan Chait, for example, recently wrote in the New York Magazine, quote, The far left's willingness to play into the opposing party's hands displays not only its continued disgust with the Democratic Party's nominee and establishment, but a certain convergence of thought with the Republican nominee. End quote. In my opinion, such views further close the gap on debate about Russia that is already pretty narrow. There are many, many, many reasons to oppose Trump and Putin, but sober debate about Russia shouldn't be sacrificed for it. to welcome Tim Noonan to the podcast to talk about the history of Soviet and Western humanitarian intervention into Afghanistan. It's a fascinating story, not just for the history of the Cold War, but it also shows how third world countries like Afghanistan served as laboratories for Soviet and Western concepts of sovereignty. Tim Noonan is a scholar of international and global history. His work focuses on the history of Russia and Eurasia, Central Asia, Iran, and Afghanistan in an international context. He is the Academy Scholar at Harvard University for International and Area Studies and the author of Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan. Here's Tim Noonan. So your book is about international development and humanitarianism in Afghanistan. And and listeners might want to wonder why I'm interviewing somebody about a book about Afghanistan. But as we'll discuss a lot of, you will talk about the role of the Soviet Union. And you deal with the role of the Soviet Union and also Western humanitarian NGOs. Uh, How did you come to this topic? At the time that I was beginning to uh, contemplate the kind of dissertation and eventually book that I would like to write, I was looking around in many other fields for inspiration. In particular, I was looking a lot at the field of American history, which I'd come to partly through 
conferences on the Cold War and readings on the Cold War. And at the time that I was trying to figure out what I would like to do for a dissertation, some of the most exciting work in the history of American foreign relations had to do with the history of economic development abroad. For Americans, we might think of programs like the Marshall Plan in Western Europe. We might think about the funds and investment that went to rebuilding places like Japan or South Korea or Taiwan in the 1950s as well. And I began to think that it would be interesting to examine how the Soviet Union also was a developmental power in its own ways. The Soviet Union obviously invested heavily into places like Cuba. It rebuilt, you know, for better or for worse, it rebuilt much of Eastern Europe after the Second World War. And Afghanistan stood out as a place where this would be a perhaps especially interesting dynamic to investigate. Afghanistan was a third world country at the time. The Soviet Union was the biggest donor to Afghanistan in the 50s and 60s. And later, once it occupied the country from 1979 to 1989, it took over the governance of much of this place. And so Afghanistan seemed like a really obvious example to understand how the Soviet Union engaged with the world at large and competed against different kinds of alternative visions of development, be the American state-led programs in the 50s and 60s, or transnational humanitarian governance, which I talk about in the second half of the book. Talk a little bit about the fact that the story of the Soviet Union also comes along with the story of Western humanitarian NGOs and really the, the rise of these organizations playing a role uh, in many global spaces. One of the one of the big themes that I examine in the book and one research agenda or one area that I hope this book inspires scholars of the Soviet Union in the world or scholars of Russian engagement in the world to look at is many of the theaters that transnational humanitarian governance and its post, you know, post Biafra, post Bangladesh style becomes very prominent are places like Cambodia, they're places like Ethiopia, they're places like Afghanistan. And I think traditionally we've thought of, oh, you know, live aid, these photos of starving Ethiopian children, and so on. And that's a very important part of the story, how Western emotions have been marshaled to send money to these faraway countries of which we know little. However, what I think has sometimes been lost in this discussion of 1970s and 1980s humanitarianism is all of those theaters I mentioned were countries that were trying on their own version of real existing socialism. Afghanistan was obviously under Soviet occupation. Ethiopia had its own socialist revolution in the 1970s and was receiving large amounts of Cuban and Soviet aid. And Cambodia itself, although it had been under Pol Pot before, was a Vietnamese protectorate, essentially, a communist Vietnamese protectorate for much of the 1980s. And so one of the interventions, no pun intended, that I try to make in this book is that many of the humanitarian groups, like Doctors Without Borders, or in the case of Afghanistan, the Swedish Committee for Afghanistan, are coming out of this sort of European leftist constellation that view the Soviet Union as a bloated, Stalinist, uh, deformed bureaucratic or deformed worker state. And there are also people, importantly, who are turning away from this naive view of the third world as morally good or this morally perfect alternative to uh, evil white global north Western imperialism. And so these theaters are particularly important if we want to grasp this broader intellectual shift away from a kind of naive belief in socialism and away from a kind of uncritical unself-reflective celebration of the third world as an alternative to all things Western. Now, your study does, and what you were just laying out too, also, it, it situates Afghanistan in the Cold War, and you do this, but you also situate it into the larger context of post-colonial sovereignty. And I think you're kind of alluding to this in your previous answer. Uh, how did Afghanistan fit within these two contexts of both the Cold War, but also a r attempt to figure out or or posit a post-colonial sovereignty. 
to, to start with the first part of the question about the Cold War dynamic, I, I, I think you'd have to say that Afghanistan becomes an object of Cold War politics only starting in the mid-1950s. In spite of much huffing and puffing about Afghanistan as this critical buffer state, the fact is that until the mid-1950s or so, it's not perceived as especially strategic, and many many actors, Americans or, and Soviets, are simply confused or ignorant when they're trying to deal with issues of ethnicity in Afghanistan or assessing why exactly they should be plowing money into this place. By the mid-1950s, however, Afghanistan becomes a really important battleground for developmental politics. The Afghans appeal to Cento, they appeal to the Americans to modernize their military in the mid-1950s, but John Foster Dulles, and a proponent of Pakistan as the dominant frontline state against the Soviet Union in Central Asia, refuses them. The Afghans still want to modernize, though, and so they turn to the Soviet Union, and by the end of 1955, and starting from then on, the Soviet Union begins to train the Afghan officer corps. They begin to build things like roads and tunnels and bread factories and, and so on in, uh, in Kabul itself, and the predictable uh, amount of red baiting, the predictable fears about Afghanistan becoming a Soviet dependency take off from there, and Afghanistan becomes this very contested object, continuing all the way to the um, 70s and 80s. However, though, as I try to do, show in the book, and as you've alluded to, I try to situate this story of developmental politics in Afghanistan in all of its different guises into, I think, a longer arc of Afghan sovereignty. It's not, I think, obvious that Afghanistan should have, or I, I think the fact of Afghan sovereignty it was kind of a miracle. It's, Afghanistan became a sovereign actor on the world stage due to the British Empire being weak at a particular moment in world history, namely around 1919 or so, and the fact of the Soviet Union extending recognition to a sovereign Afghan state in 1919. And it's through the Soviet Union, it's through anti-British actors in the 1920s, like the Germans, the Italians, the Turks, etc., that this political construction that we call Afghanistan is recognized, in theory, as, a, as an independent actor on the world stage. It becomes a member of the League of Nations, etc. And yet Afghanistan throughout this century is a classic case of what political scientists would call a weak state. And so one of the tensions throughout this entire period is you have many different actors with different geopolitical interests in this region importing their own Afghan diasporas, killing other Afghan diasporas in Kabul to replace them, all the while claiming they represent all of Afghanistan, they represent all of this space. And developmental politics is one way to claim legitimacy for those kinds of projects. And what about the idea of post-colonial sovereignty? Well, one big idea in the book is that Afghanistan becomes this mirror, if you will, for how different ideas about post-colonial sovereignty are, are, are playing out. The way that Afghanistan enters the world system, as, as I mentioned, you, know, you might say is if you can get independence and you can get recognition from a great power, then you're in. It doesn't really matter what your economy is like. It doesn't really matter if you have a military. But if you can get, you know, the Brits or the Soviets or the Germans to uh, to recognize you, you can be secured in the system. Eventually, you can get recognition through a body like the League of Nations or later the United Nations. And by the 50s and 60s, with the advent of decolonization, there's a broad consensus in the world. And scholars like Ryan Irwin and Jeffrey Byrne have written on this that colonialism was a bad thing. Human rights, uh, or, or something like human rights, would mean decolonization, and really the, the end goal for some vision of, of global justice would be more sovereign states in the world, more third world sovereign states, because we can all agree that Western imperialism and Western empire was the problem, therefore the sovereign state is, is kind of the answer. And a lot of the 50s and a lot of the 60s, I suggest, are a moment where many different superpowers have kind of reluctantly accommodated themselves to this idea 
but they're investing in national economies, in societies like Afghanistan, in post-colonial African states, and they're all very invested, both mentally and financially, in you know building steel factory for Ghana, even if it doesn't make greater sense, or it would make more sense for it to be in, uh, integrated into some kind of regional economic formation. However, as I try to show, by the 1970s and the 1980s, something very important starts to happen. Many actors, many of them first non-state in Western contexts, begin to start to say, well, sovereignty just for its own sake doesn't actually advance any cause of global justice that we would identify with. The Vietnamese, for example, fought a brutal 20-year war against French and American imperialism. They eventually got their state. They took back their country. But looking around in the 1970s, observers, many of them in Europe, would say, look, the Vietnamese capture all of Vietnam, but the result is the boat people crisis. Hundreds of thousands of ethnic Chinese, hundreds of thousands of political opponents are left fleeing into the seas and just drowning in the South China Sea. And this really isn't what we signed up for when we were championing, you know, guerrilla warfare, the, the independence of the third world state, and, and so on. Similar things might be said of Pol Pot's Cambodia in the early 1970s. Independent country, anti-Western, closely engaged with Maoist China, etc., but the result is a total disaster. So many people on the European left who had been anti-colonial and had perceived anti-colonialism and a certain kind of third-worldism as the most morally pure cause that you could engage yourself with begin to think of new concepts of human rights. They think of new concepts of sort of medical humanitarianism, the idea that Instead of championing third world self-determination, we just need to make sure that people aren't wounded, that they're not dying of polio, that they're not hungry, etc., etc. And frankly, it's more important for individuals inside of third world nation states to be protected according to these new visions of trauma, hunger, than it is for us to honor third world sovereignty. And this happens at precisely a time when the Soviets have really doubled down on this vision of third world sovereignty as the, the hook, if you like, on which they're going to hang their hat. They become invested in theaters like Afghanistan and say, look, Afghanistan's a sovereign state. We have to, it has a border with Pakistan. It, that border can't be violated. So the Soviets are really doubling down on this older version of third world sovereignty at precisely a moment when, he, when many Western actors, needless to say, many Islamic actors as well, have moved on to a different vision of justice that doesn't really take third world state borders particularly seriously as any kind of moral or indeed legal boundary. What I find quite interesting, at least this is the impression I get from reading the book, is that over this 20-year period where you have roughly 1950s to the, into the 1970s, where you have a lot of foreign economic development, you also have the the influx of all of these humanitarian organizations that are dealing with issues like medicine and hunger. But what I found quite interesting is that there doesn't seem to be any effort to, or at least an, a concerted effort to build an Afghan state. That's correct. I, I think, and this is this is one of the large shifts that one sees from the 1960s to the 1980s or so, is the state goes from being a desiderium to a problem, really. The state goes from being kind of the solution to all the manifold problems that third world faces to being perceived as violator of human rights, you know, using chemical weapons, imposing blockades. And so there's this odd way in which as soon as third world guerrillas manage to take over these states, they, they discredit themselves in the ideas in the eyes of humanitarians who then go on to ally with a different set of guerrillas, namely Islamist guerrillas in Afghanistan, to counter them. But yes, there, there, is a, there is really a lack of interest in engaging with the Afghan state once these humanitarian teams begin to enter Afghanistan. At first, I should add, this was simply a practical measure. The Afghan communist government and the Soviet Union had no interest at all 
of course, in allowing these groups embedded in these Sunni Islamist guerrilla movements to enter inside of the country. And more than that, the Soviet Union and many of its allies at the United Nations blocked action on the part of neutral UN agencies like the UNDP or the ICRC, the, the International Committee of the Red Cross. And so there's just simply no institutional avenue to engage with these communist states like Ethiopia or Afghanistan to deliver aid to people who were suffering inside of the country. So there was partly a practical choice as well. But I think more broadly, there was this obviously just this, this shift from perceiving third world communist states as legitimate to being some version of foreign occupation. So there's a very quick shift from celebrating the Viet Cong, this third world communist national liberation movement as legitimate, to all of a sudden saying when the Afghans have their own third world communist movement, it's illegitimate. Would you put this shift also, because you are dealing with the emergence of humanitarianism, particularly amongst a, a shift in the a European leftist community, away from you know Soviet communism, away from political parties, the Communist Party, do you see a parallel between the discrediting of the state on the one hand and this turn to these non-state actors, you know, non-governmental organizations? as a way to get around this political problem. Yes, I think that the turn to many of these non-state actors was perceived as an escape at first from very contested Cold War political polarities. Um, in other words, in a, in a world of Cold War Europe, you could say, well, Hungary 56, Prague 68, these have besmirched, if not discredited, the, uh, the, the cause of socialism, even some version of Eurocommunism, if we think about Italy or, or France in the 70s. On the other hand, uh, very few of the actors that I investigate who challenge the Soviet Union would have identified with the United States. Many of them would have viewed NATO as just as imperialist and just as bad as the Warsaw Pact. And so I think for many, an engagement in humanitarian activity, you know, saving the starving African child or saving the uh, Cambodian refugee was this way to engage or activate some sense of purpose and some sense of international engagement. And as a result, engaging with some African child or a Cambodian orphan was a way to sort of recreate that sense of moral purpose, but that would not be as burdened with these Cold War bipolarities that usual debates between right and left in Europe would, would call forth. I would also add that an important thing that is taking place at this time is sort of the rediscovery of concepts like genocide and like trauma, which can then be redeployed against the Soviet Union in a situation like Afghanistan. The 1970s, as many scholars have shown, is a time when European awareness of the Holocaust really changes a lot. It goes from being perceived as, you know, the Nazi dictatorship was just a capitalist junta to a regime that, you know, actively wanted to murder millions of people. And so the, these ideas kind of move and they fuse, but the point is that once actors have a greater awareness of genocides taking place and of genocides not being prevented in Europe, they start going out into Asia and Africa and then start saying, there's a genocide taking place in Cambodia. There's a genocide taking place in Ethiopia. There's a genocide taking place in Afghanistan. And these concepts just pile up and help to discredit this, this idea of this totally isolated third world state as being legitimate and no, no matter what happens inside of its, its borders. And so these actors can go to places like Pakistan, in the case of my book, and find evidence that many people are dying. The application of the term genocide is, of course, politicized during this period and, and is not done in a uh, technical or, or academic way, but uh, this justifies the sense of saying, we're having a second Holocaust take place in Afghanistan. We're having a second Treblinka take place in Afghanistan. And those are very explicitly, I would add, the kinds of parallels 
that people make. And so this is kind of a preview in some ways of what we see later in places like Rwanda or Srebrenica, this idea that if there is a genocide taking place, or more importantly, if we have identified that there's a genocide taking place, we can override Soviet or third world socialist sovereignty. Also, though, with the with the influx of Western humanitarian groups and activists, you also have Soviet activists, particularly members of the Komsomol, who also went to Afghanistan in, in, during this period. And, and in a way, you can see it as a Soviet form of humanitarianism as well. What was the experience of these activists? What did they do to spread socialism within Afghanistan? And also, of course, within the context of the fact that the Soviet military had invaded the country? Yeah, I, I would just like to emphasize that even though this book contains a lot about non-Soviet and, and non-Russian actors, it's partly to, I think, help us specify or to, to gain a grip on the specificity of the Soviet Union in the world. I think what Afghanistan is very helpful for as a narrative device in this sense is we have so many non-Soviet actors running around and challenging the Soviets that it helps us get a sense of what the Soviets do differently. And in the case of these Young Communist Youth League advisors, here I think we see a very important difference. So just to clarify for listeners, Afghanistan had its own socialist revolution without, and indeed probably contrary to, Soviet advice or Soviet desires in 1978. However, the elite began murdering one another. It became very chaotic very quickly, and the Soviets convened around Christmas of 1979. They then set about to building up a kind of version of real existing socialism in Afghanistan itself, working with indigenous Afghan communists, but with an enormous contingent of tens of thousands of advisors, ranging from the economy to child mass organizations to women's organizations as well. Now, in the case of these youth organizations, what was basically desired on the part of the Afghans was a clone of the Soviet Komsomol, this mass organization for Soviet youth that numbered in the tens of millions by the 1970s. And so many of these young men in their late 20s and 30s are seconded or sent to Afghanistan to the Afghan provinces to build up these mass organizations, to build things like schools, to work with younger Afghan communist secretaries in their mid-20s to help identify kids from, say, ages 10 to 20 who are going to be promising individuals that can then be fed into the police, into the army, and can effectively build up this new Afghan regime, more or less. Now, what I think is interesting here, though, or helps us, I think, specify what was unique or different about Soviet humanitarianism or Soviet engagement uh, abroad is that many of the actors that I interviewed and many of the archival archival visions I looked at was that they viewed childhood as a eminently political phase of life. There was no sense of the child as needing to be sheltered from the demands of politics or needing to be innocent until, you know, age 21 or age 18 or, or, or what have you. But rather, there was really a sense of children are critical to building a regime. You need to recruit as many young people into this mass party as possible, as, as early of an age as possible, and the system kind of builds upon itself. Indeed, if we think about Gorbachev at this time, the Soviet general secretary, one major phase of his career was being a Soviet Komsomol youth organizer in Stavropol. So the system kind of all feeds on itself. Many, many of the time they identify Afghan orphans. The invasion obviously produces many kids who are orphans, whose parents have been killed or have been separated from their parents and driven into exile. The Soviets operate a complicated scheme of moving Afghan kids and especially Afghan orphans to orphanages within Kabul, and in many cases, orphanages and and homes inside of the Soviet Union, which I go into into some detail. But the point I would say is that even though they're engaging in what we today would recognize as some form of international child trafficking or some violation of of children's rights to have a country, to 
not be separated from their parents. This is all rationalized very much within the framework of needing to build a mass party and this idea that kids are fundamentally political. In contrast, uh, as I try to show in the book, the humanitarian imagination, if you will, among French and Swedish and Danish and many other humanitarian actors is quite different. Inspired indirectly, but I think still influenced in some way by the work of people like Philip Aries, the new ideas about childhood that are emerging in the 1970s, there's this move to say, look, a child is not political. A child is innocent. It needs to grow with its parents. The child's psyche is incredibly labile and, and, and able to be formed during these early years. And so instead of paying attention to how can we move this kid and make him a, an army officer at age 20 or, or so on, it's much more about, is this child traumatized? What experiences has this child had? That there's sort of this new vision of the child as a highly fragile individual who must be protected and sheltered from the brutal realities of politics as much as possible. And this, of course, then feeds back into this broader moral formation, if you like, along with the, the imagination of genocide that I discussed earlier, to justify going into Afghanistan, to violating third world sovereignty and saying, no, kids are being kidnapped, kids are being sent to orphanages, kids are being separated from their parents. And these are not legitimate political goals because children are not political. Now that itself is kind of a political stance or that, that itself is not a, there, there's no you know, scientific or uh, child psychology proof proving that kids are not political entities. But these are sort of two of the ideas that I see clashing about how humanitarian actors should relate to young people. It's interesting because the child becomes the metaphor for each side's ideological position. Because if you think of if the child is a political creature that needs to be developed, this is similar to how the Soviet Union ideologically understands the development of sovereign states into socialism. And the idea that the child needs to be protected and nurtured and it, the trauma needs to be dealt with is similar to the ideas coming out of this, as you said, this humanitarian movement. I guess the, my question is, how did the Soviet Union understand or view Afghanistan and Afghan sovereignty through their ideology? There is a history, as I try to show in the book, of great confusion that centers around the Soviets' understanding of who are the Pashtun people and is there such a thing as a Pashtun nation. Now, in order to give a quick overview of this, listeners would be advised that um, Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic country. There are many different ethnic groups within it. The largest, however, comprising anywhere between 40 and 60% of the population, depending on who you ask, there's been no reliable Afghan census in decades. But the largest group are the Pashtuns, who speak a, um, a Indo-Iranian language that is uh, in the same family as Persian, but uh, not the same as the Persian language. There are many other ethnic groups, but the point is that the Pashtuns are the largest. However, in neighboring Pakistan, there are also many, many Pashtuns who live there as well. And there are, in fact, approximately twice as many Pashtuns that live in Pakistan as there are in Afghanistan. The issues of which ethnic group is dominant within a country is always a problem when it comes to post-colonial states. That's not the unique part about Afghanistan. What I think is uh, unique about Afghanistan is Soviet scholars throughout, from 1919 onward, are trying to evaluate what is this Afghan state. Is it a Pashtun nation state? If so, how can it be a Pashtun nation state if it's only half Pashtun? And over the 1960s and 1970s, many of the Afghan socialists who identify with the Soviet Union as a progressive force in the world affairs, who receive training from the Soviet Union, are not only socialists, but are also Pashtun nationalists. They view the state of Pakistan as illegitimate. Even before the Afghan socialists came to power, Afghanistan was the only country in the world 
to vote against Pakistan entering the United Nations on precisely those grounds that it was colonizing Pashtuns. But the long and short of it is when these Afghan communists come to power in 1978, many Soviet scholars are ill-equipped to understand this Pashtun nationalist dimension of Afghan socialism, which is potentially disastrous because many of these Afghan socialists are interested essentially in exploiting the Soviet Union to launch a uh, highly destructive war against Pakistan to reclaim and to liberate, as they see it, Pashtuns living under Punjabi, that is to say the largest ethnic group in Pakistan, living under Punjabi domination inside of Pakistan. Now, this all sounds very convoluted. There's all these different ethnic groups and so on. But the point is that if you try to view this solely through the lens of socialism, good, third world revolution, good, Afghanistan had a third world revolution, therefore let's, let's support them, you are likely to get into a lot of trouble very quickly. And indeed, this, this is what ends up happening from 1978 to 1979. After the Soviets invade, they begin to try to retract this. They begin to try to say, look, Afghanistan has a border. It's the border with Pakistan. Throughout all this time, no Afghan government, as is the case until today, no Afghan government recognizes that border with Pakistan is legitimate. And so the Soviets are really left in this strange situation. They're trying to affirm the sovereignty of Afghanistan as this national construction, as a nation state with legible borders all around. We can draw it on a map. But in the meantime, they're still engaging with these Afghan actors who are saying, look, okay, we don't necessarily want to draw you into a World War III with Pakistan, but the Pashtun question remains open. Let's play this a little bit more, more long term. And this creates great stress on the Soviets' part, and they are left throughout unsuccessfully trying to reach some sort of peace settlement that would leave Afghanistan within its borders, but obviously they can't reach any settlement on this with Pakistan and the Mujahideen, much less with their own Afghan patron or their own Afghan clients. Well, would you say then that one of the crux of the or one of the crux of the ideological problem they had is that they couldn't really account for nationalism within the Marxist-Leninist ideology? I mean, sure, they understood that nationalism can play a revolutionary role. But at the same time, it also plays a very conservative and regressive role. And it seems that in the idea of trying to consolidate a Pashtun nation across the borders of Afghanistan and Pakistan seems to suggest that very problem. I, I think that's definitely a major element in the Soviet misdiagnosis of the situation. When the Soviets think about, about nationalisms, it's often the framework of post-colonial comprador bourgeoisies that are corrupt and uh, in bed with the IMF or World Bank or, or what have you, but will eventually be um, uh, overthrown and so-called neo-colonialism will, will go away. But yes, I, I think they oftentimes tend to view too much developments in the third world primarily through, will this benefit something called the international socialist movement? Will this benefit socialism writ large? And unfortunately, as many of the theaters, be it Cambodia or Vietnam or um, Ethiopia show, you, you end up with these socialist elites who, you know, might espouse some version of Marxism-Leninism, but have very difficult feelings towards, say, Tigrinya speakers in Ethiopia, who might say, let's just try to destroy the territory that became Eritrea, rather than having some kind of more democratic model. You have Afghan socialists who say, let's start World War III with Pakistan, rather than dealing with developing our own country. You have Vietnamese communists who are engaged more in killing Chinese than they are in building some kind of economy for their country. And I think because the Soviets are sometimes ill-equipped to account for these varieties of national socialisms, if you'd like, that becomes a huge problem for them in their third world strategy of the 1980s. 
another big issue that you talk about is the role of Afghan women and Afghan women's organizations. And of course, you know, we've all become familiar with the issue of or the problem of the Afghan woman since 2001 in the United States. So talk a bit about Afghan women's organizations and their understandings of feminisms and, and their legacies. One major intervention I'm hoping to reach with this book is to historicize and contextualize the way in which Western, primarily, audiences think about the issue of women's rights uh, in the third world at large, but especially vis-a-vis Afghanistan, which, as you say, since uh, at least the Taliban uh, regime, but certainly since the U.S. mission of 2001, uh, has become such a prominent theme. Afghan socialists were often feminists, is where I would start with this. The Afghan Communist Party, founded in the mid-1960s, has a women's organization and is very committed to a certain to a solution of what they would call the woman question in Afghanistan. And watching which terms and concepts we use here, here is, I think, especially important. The, the main point that I would take away is whether before the Afghan revolution in 78 or, or the Soviet occupation uh, or, or after it, many of these Afghan socialists and Afghan feminists who are around the Afghan Communist Party are interested in a vision of what they would call women's liberation, but I would say as a subset of workers' liberation or of workers' revolution. To use sort of contemporary 2016 terms to describe this, uh, you might say that Afghan feminists are not intersectional at all. They view sort of women's issues primarily and indeed subsumed under the broader issue of sort of workers' rights or a workers' revolution and would, would say that once we have a full democratization of the means of production and get more women into factories, more women into these you know, dirty professions, all of the issues that we normally see with women's oppression will go away. Women's oppression isn't the result of something called patriarchy. Women's oppression doesn't exist independent of economic circumstances. In fact, it's exclusively and primarily tied with the economic relations in the society. So once we get rid of feudalism, as they would call it, we will have a solution to women's issues. And, and what is the legacy of that in Afghanistan today? Do you still, do you have a sense of it? Well, I, I think that you had a, it, it's important to note that in the 1980s, you had one of the largest female working populations in, in Afghanistan in its history. Many thousands, if not tens of thousands of Afghan women were employed in Kabul and uh, worked in pink collar professions for the regime in the, in the 1980s. Many of them went to exile, but a lot also went down to the provinces in the 1990s and became teachers and, and so on as well. I think the broader legacy is more or less that this vision of a vision of, of feminism or a, a vision of women's rights that was tightly coupled with economic questions was replaced by something quite different uh, that has become very standard in global development practice since the 1970s or so. Namely, this idea of something called women's empowerment and that if, if only women can sort of take more control of their own economic circumstances and work doing handicrafts or selling jewelry or, or whatever, this will help liberate them. And there is also the, there's also tones of backwards, primitive male culture that is also oppressing them as well. And oftentimes with Western intervention serving to, to save Afghan women in this constellation. So I fear, you know, the, the Soviet vision, I think, was for, for a moment was extremely limiting in, in many ways. I, I, as much as I think even the most committed activists for women's rights in places like Afghanistan or developing countries today would say that structural economies or national economies of these countries has something to do with human rights. The, uh, the Soviet vision was really quite limiting. And, and I think we can recognize that there are forms of women's oppression that don't take place exclusively 
through the economic domain. However, I think that oftentimes development practice today and the development rhetorics we use tends to go too far in the other direction, namely to say that there is this sort of all-oppressive male patriarchal traditional culture which we are ascribing to Afghans and the women must be liberated from that without real attention to how are we going to employ 20 million Afghan women? Are we going to employ 20 million Afghan women? And, and given that it's unlikely that Afghanistan will have that kind of economy, what are sort of realistic expectations for, for women in, in that society? So what, I, what I'm trying to do in the book is to not only historicize the Soviet engagement on this issue, but to suggest alternative visions or at least discredited visions, if you like, compared to where we are now when we think about impoverished or oppressed women in countries poorer than our own. I want to ask you about your sources, particularly the interviews of former Soviet activists and people who participated in this effort in Afghanistan. How do they reflect on their participation today? Like, what did they think about it? Did this come up in your interviews at all in terms of where they positioned themselves, their life in this story? On the one hand, I, I should say that many of the people I interviewed were more than friendly and interested. And I, I went into a lot of these interviews expecting basically that it wouldn't work. Uh, I, I thought that oftentimes people would not want to do this essentially because I was an American or would have would just not want to talk about it for, for political reasons or because it was too traumatic or, or what have you. And I found quite the opposite, fortunately. I think on one level, there was an understandable sense of disgust and revulsion towards American and Western policy towards Afghanistan, in particular, vis-a-vis -vis the end of the 1980s. I think that many Soviet, many of these former Soviet advisors could understand why the Soviet occupation itself was perceived as illegitimate, but the way in which the United States stood by as the Geneva Accords were violated in the late 1980s and the Mujahideen Alliance was effectively allowed to overrun Afghanistan, that was perceived as, I think, irresponsible. And, and many people, many of the people I interviewed were saying, you know, the United States is committed to building civil society, you're committed to some vision of secularism, it's itself kind of a complicated concept for this part of the world. We were doing the same thing 25 years ago, but you guys were trying to kill us. In fact, you were you were allying and sending aid to Sunni fundamentalist groups, you know, whereas today you're fighting, you're fighting the groups that would become ISIS uh, as well. So there was obviously a sense of porting out the hypocrisy or the, the caprices of, of American foreign policy on that account. But I think to get more to the heart of the matter and to maybe offer some themes that can connect with that other scholars of Russian and Soviet history might engage with, many of the people I interviewed, and particularly these former Komsomol advisors, I think viewed helping Afghanistan as a uncontrived way to fulfill some kind of international duty in the world and to live up to certain visions of manhood as well. And many of these advisors, I should add, were, were men. In fact, all of them were for the Komsomol uh, things, although the, the program itself was led by a woman. But um, so, I mean, the Soviet Union offered many of these cliches about fulfill your internationalist duty, go to Afghanistan and get killed and fulfill your internationalist duty. There was a certain amount of cynicism and propaganda about that. However, I think that many of the men I interviewed would reflect on their own lives and their own families, and they would look to their fathers, or they, they'd look to a kind of imagined generation of Soviet citizens slightly older than their fathers as well who had either given aid to the Spanish Civil War, or who had taken in refugees from the Spanish Civil War or the Greek Civil War, and they could say, okay, look, the situation's changed. We're engaged more in third world theaters now, like Afghanistan or, or like Ethiopia or Syria uh, even, smaller military contention. And just as in the past, we have supported so-called progressive movements in Europe against fascism, now we're doing the same thing. Now we're supporting Afghan socialists against some kind of Islamic fascism, although that's not the, the term that they would have uh, used at the time. 
that, that was one part of it. And I think the second part was this real investment in the idea of the child and securing for the child, this the Afghan child, this kind of safe existence. Many of them, I think, had grown up on the idea of the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, as a particularly traumatic, although again, not in those terms, a particularly devastating time for Soviet children and a time where it was effectively impossible as a family in Russia to have any kind of normal existence. And I think having been raised on those memories, whether from their parents or their grandparents, I think that this idea of helping a country like Afghanistan that was at war and helping secure for Afghan kids some kind of normalcy was incredibly important to a lot of them. The irony, of course, is that what Soviet citizens perceive as a moral lesson that they can learn from the Great Patriotic War and apply to third world societies is then viewed by humanitarian actors as child abduction. And that, that is fundamentally a political question, but it's one of the, the tragedies that marks the Afghan situation of the 1980s. And finally, what are the legacies of this history of Soviet and Western humanitarian intervention in Afghanistan? What might we learn from your study? Well, I, I think that looking at the earlier part of the story I tell, namely the 1950s and 1960s, I, I think we can, can conclude that at least historically, Afghanistan has tended to do better when it is engaged a variety of patrons rather than putting in all of its chips with one patron. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Afghan monarchy was relatively effective at balancing itself and claiming a neutral position for itself between the United States and the Soviet Union and many other smaller European donors, in particular West Germany. However, once the regional geopolitics changes and the Afghan regime and, and Afghanistan itself becomes you know, under Soviet occupation, this results in many of the other regional powers effectively ganging up on Afghanistan and the Soviet Union to, to kick it out. And so I think that while one, if one is engaged in development in Afghanistan and engaged in wanting some kind of more secure future for Afghanistan, I think we have to think much more seriously about what would be some kind of regional constellation where there is neither a, an American military presence nor a Pakistani-supported puppet government, but rather some kind of regional solution that involves powers with interests in it, such as Russia, Iran. Yes, Pakistan. Pakistan has deep interests in it. Saudi Arabia has deep interests in it as well. But trying to recognize some kind of regional constellation, I, I think, would be important rather than one country trying to claim hegemony or exclusive control in Afghanistan. I think another major legacy is that many of the relevant actors still perceive a united Afghan state as desirable or even existent. I, I mean, one striking thing is that by the end of the 1980s and the early 1990s, the country had been deeply, deeply fragmented. And yet, in spite of all the trauma visited upon that country, we still don't see any political will or any desire, certainly not from the Afghan side and not from any of the relevant regional powers to say, look, the experience of Afghan statehood has been a failure, basically, and maybe it would be better if this were broken up into different countries or made some kind of permanent international protectorate. Now, you know, nobody is going to say that and nobody is going to do that because that would obviously entail an enormous investment. No Afghan nationalist would ever want to do that. And yet here we are with billions and billions of development dollars spent with precious little to, uh, to, to show for it. So I guess I would say that the Endurance, uh, the, the endurance of Afghan sovereignty as a fact and, and something that, in spite of the coincidence of its coming about, remains very much with us today, is a surprising legacy of a lot of this experience. That was Tim Noonan, Academy Scholar at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies and author of Humanitarian Invasion, Global Development in Cold War Afghanistan. If you'd like to submit a question to Tim, please go to seansrussiablog.org and click on Submit a Question. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. 
If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. A big thanks to those who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and Soundcloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Моя Марусечка, моя ты куколка, моя Марусечка, моя ты душенька, моя Марусечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.